want you to find two places in your Bible this morning. First of all, Mark 1. And we're only going to read from Mark 1, not going to preach from it. It is the companion text to Matthew chapter 4, where we'll be bringing today's message from. I'm interested in Christ's follow me to four fishermen. Christ's follow me to four fishermen. This is his call to four fishermen, two sets of brothers, to follow him in discipleship. Mark 1, and then hold your place, if you will, in Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Of course, we're still in the life of Christ, and this is the next episode after the rejection of Christ by the Nazarenes, and he is moving then to Capernaum. This is the next event chronologically in the life of Christ. If you can and will, would you stand with us, please? We'll honor the Word of God by standing for today's text, for the reading of today's text. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now, if you'll find the companion text to it, Matthew chapter number 4, we're going to read through uh, verse number 18 through verse 22. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 22. The Bible says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Uh, Brother Dustin, would you lead us in prayer, please, brother? Amen. Thank you for standing. Christ, follow me to four fishermen. This will be message 26 from the life of Christ. I don't know how long we'll be in the life of Christ. I hope for some time. I keep dragging it out. I have wanted to preach from the life of Christ through the life of Christ before I leave this walk of life. So maybe if I keep dragging it out, God might grant me life for a little while. But just a brief review. You remember we looked seven times into the life of Christ leading into his birth. There were events and circumstances leading up to the birth of Christ. There were four messages considering the scenes just beyond the nativity, scenes from the very early life of Christ. Uh, There were three messages from the silent years of Christ. Uh, Some say there are 18 silent years. I'm convinced there are 28 silent years, 10 prior to his uh, episode there um, uh, when he was uh, left behind by Joseph and Mary at the temple and then another 18 to follow before he comes forth for his public ministry. 
There were three messages, you'll remember, where he's moving from obscurity to his uh, public ministry. Um, There was one message regarding his baptismal experience. And then there were two messages from the temptation scene that we have in the Gospels where he was tempted of the devil for some, um, some 40 days as he fasted and he prayed in the wilderness. And then since uh, that particular scene, as he comes forth for his public ministry, we've noticed eight scenes from this ger- uh, greater Galilean part of his ministry. There were two scenes from the first five followers of Christ in John 1. Some say there are six, but there are only five that are mentioned. And then uh, there was a, a message where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cain of Galilee. There was also from that same chapter, John chapter number 2, Christ's cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. John chapter number 3, there was Christ's encounter with Nicodemus by night. John chapter number 4, there was Christ seeking of a Samaritan sinner. Also in John 4, there was the healing of the nobleman's son. Then our last look into the life of Christ, we noticed Christ rejected of the Nazarenes. You remember he took, uh, he took the scriptures and he read from the book of Isaiah. And he, he made known who he was. He made his claims known. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He was the one that was promised of old that they've been looking for. He grew up in that synagogue. It'd be like growing up in this church uh, congregation. Those people knew him. They had watched him and they rejected him. Uh, many writers believe that he was, uh, he was um, the young preacher from Nazareth. They were proud of him until he made that claim. When he made that claim, they, they, they rejected him outright, rejected him, and then that's when he moves down, uh, moves into Capernaum and, uh, and is there uh, for the remainder of his ministry. That will be his home base for the remainder of his ministry. So that brings us today to this follow me command that's given to these four fishermen. Now, since the experience where there was uh, uh, Andrew and Peter, Uh, There was John, there was Philip, and Nathaniel, the first five. You remember, they followed him. As a matter of fact, two followed him one day all the way home. And then then Simon is brought by Andrew. Uh, John brings, uh, and then Philip comes to him. Then Philip goes to Nathaniel. Uh, Since then, evidently some time has lapsed. We don't know how much time. This is not the first day of his ministry. His ministry has been, uh, has been, um, uh, he, he's been engaged in ministry now for some time. And so evidently, these four fishermen, three of the four are mentioned in John chapter number one. Of course, James isn't mentioned. But these four fishermen, three of the four, evidently have gone back to the fishing business. And by this time, of course, uh, Christ's ministry, there would have been a number of followers. And here's what we believe. We believe that his number of followers throughout his ministry until he gets over toward uh, his betrayal fluctuate. We believe the numbers are up and down. Uh, a, good, um, a good grasp of that is when he fed the multitudes with the fish and bread, fed some 5,000 men besides the women and children. And as long as there was food that was being passed out, as long as there, was, there were miracles being performed, uh, they're willing to go to great lengths to follow him. But then you'll remember he used that bread as an object lesson. He said, I am the bread of life. He began making claims on a man's life that will choose to follow him. And as he, 
As he made those claims upon a man's life, they walked away. The majority of them, the vast majority of them left that day. And you notice that in the life of Christ. The, the numbers may be up, they may be down, uh, but they fluctuate. They vacillate throughout uh, his, his ministry. Christ says, follow me. I want to speak under three headings, if I may. And uh, this is a familiar passage of Scripture where he issues this call to these men. I'm interested in Matthew's writings of Christ up until now. You'll find in Matthew's gospel that the, the spotlight is put right on Jesus. All the way through, uh, all the way through his gospel account, his spotlight is on him. When I think about that, I think about even this sermon today. If I'm the hero of my sermon, then I have not preached Christ. If I'm the hero of my prayer, I have not prayed properly. If I'm the hero of my own testimony, as I would testify before you, that's not a Christ-honoring testimony. Matthew teaches us. Now, Matthew is given the detail. He was a tax collector. He was a man. As a matter of fact, he writes more about money in the New Testament than all the other writers. But that's true to his nature. He was a tax collector. He, he kept the books. Uh, he, he, he knew finances and worked for the Roman government. He was despised because of it. Uh, but uh, throughout the book of Matthew, you'll find that Christ is the focus. And so we'll just skim chapter 1, 2, 3 and come in four with him. And then, of course, secondly, there's Christ's call upon the lives of these fishermen here in these verses. And then there's Christ's purpose, his purpose for calling them to follow him. He has a purpose, and I were following him as well. Now, Matthew's writings of Christ up, in, uh, up until now, in Matthew chapter number 1, you remember the genealogy of Christ? As a matter of fact, that's where we started our series, this series. And, and we learned right in his genealogy two things, that Gentiles uh, are part of his plan. Now, you would think that we're second-class citizens, and of course the Bible calls us barbarians and first one thing and another, and the, and, and the gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And we learned what the Jews have known the whole time. That is that God had a plan for Gentiles as well, not just for the Jewish people. And you remember we, we talked about uh, those women that were listed in the genealogy. There was Tamar, who played the part of prostitute as a one-time act. There was Rahab, who was in the continual business of prostitution in her life. And then there was Ruth, a Moabitess. Morally, she's upright, but she's part of an accursed people. She's a descendant of Lot. And then there was Bathsheba. You remember the adulteress with David, Bathsheba. Her name's not even given. The Bible only calls her her. Doesn't even give her name, but we know who the Word of God's talking about. Why? Why are all these names listed in the, in the genealogy of Christ? Well, it is to remind us of two things. Number one, that God saves sinners. Christ died for all of us. He died for all of it. All of our sin, it can be gone. If you're lost, it can be erased. It can be blotted out. It can be forgiven. But only through Jesus Christ. Now, we're not forgiven because we bought us a Bible. We're not forgiven because somebody baptized us. We are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. So we're reminded in that genealogy, and I didn't mean to set up camp here even for these couple of moments, but we're reminded, number one, that God saves sinners. And then number two, we're reminded that God is not ashamed of his people. And I'm glad for that. He wasn't ashamed of Bathsheba putting her name in there. He was not ashamed of Ruth. He was not ashamed of Tamar, nor was he ashamed of Rahab. He included them right there. 
And then in Matthew chapter number 1, there was the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph. You know the story. Matthew chapter number 2, there are really three divisions of the second chapter, but the spotlight's put on Jesus again. There was the arrival of the Magi. I don't think Christ is two years old. Herod just ordered the slaying of the little boys from two years old and under. He wants to cover his bases. But many months after the birth of Christ, the Magi comes with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And those gifts were befitting that of a a prophet, a priest, and a king, and that's who our Lord is in his person. There was the flight into Egypt. You remember Herod ordered the slaying of the babies. It's called uh, the slaying of the innocents. You remember that uh, Joseph is, is spoken to by an angel again, and he takes, he takes his little family, he takes Jesus, and he takes Mary into Egypt. Now, we believe because of what's been passed down through history, very likely they moved into Alexandria Egypt, which was occupied by a multitude of Jews in those days. It was a safe haven for Jews fleeing trouble. Then after the death of Herod, Jesus was about two. Joseph brings his family back to Nazareth, and Jesus will spend his years there for the most part there in Nazareth. Matthew chapter number three, the spotlights on him again is John's preaching. And John says, I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoe latchet. Um, he said, now, I can get you wet, I can baptize you, but he's going to set you on fire. And if you don't come to him, he's going to put you in hellfire one day. And then, of course, we saw Christ's baptism in Matthew 3. Then in Matthew 4, there's the tempting of Christ. There is Christ return, or, or going into Capernaum and residing there. And then we come to this, this follow me to four uh, fishermen. But everything in Matthew's Gospels, you read through it every year, Always be mindful. He's focused. Uh, he, is, he is focused genuinely upon Christ. Matthew's writings of Christ up until now. Secondly, the heart of this message, the hub of it, there's Christ's call upon the lives of these fishermen. We believe that uh, several of, of Christ's disciples who will later be commissioned to be apostles and sent out to preach the gospel, they'll be commissioned and empowered to perform miracles that other men will not be uh, will not be commissioned to do. Uh, these, uh, these Several of them were fishermen. Uh, sometimes I'll be out eating fish with somebody, and I'll say, you know, the Lord liked fish. He made a bunch of them. And he even cooked a few for his disciples one day on the seashore. And, uh, but nevertheless, these four fishermen, we've already identified them from Mark and from Matthew's text. Uh, they are, of course, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. There's James, uh, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And these sets of brothers, they're forever linked to their parents, they're forever linked to each other, but now they are, through eternity, throughout eternity, are linked to Christ. They are followers of Christ. It depends on who you read after. Of course, that's all I know how to do when it comes to studies, read after other men, good men. These follow me commands, some say that there are 13 and 13 only. Now, I know that's wrong. I found 16. Some say there are many as 18, if you know where... All 18 are, I wish you would show me. God is my witness. I can only find 16 of them, but I can prove 16 of them in the gospel accounts. Here as he says, says, follow me, he actually utters those words, or at least they're recorded to only two of those disciples, but we believe he possibly uttered that to the other two as well. Verse 19 has it for us, where the Bible says, and he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Christ's follow me command 
is, it, it was issued when he, said, when he said, follow me to these fishermen and to others and also to us uh, today. Listen to what he said, and we're going to read this again here in a little bit. But in Matthew 16, 24, this is one of Christ's follow me commands. Matthew 16, 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so we touched on this last week as we had a bit of a testimony service and, and that sort of thing last Sunday morning referring to we would have preached this text had we have, had we have preached last Sunday in a traditional manner of preaching. But the call today is to follow Christ in salvation. When a man follows Christ, he, he, he abandons sin. He actually abandons himself. And he abandons the world around him. He turns from every bit of that and turns it to Christ. As a matter of fact, that's the way he's preaching, right? He's, he's preaching a forgotten element of the gospel, and that is repentance. Look back when he, when he leaves Nazareth. He's been, he's been rejected of the Nazarenes, and he goes to Capernaum. Watch what he preaches. Now, that section where he goes to Capernaum is just prior to this text in Matthew 4. Look at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he, uh, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See, he's fulfilling Scripture. God knew ahead of time that he would be in Capernaum preaching. The Bible says in verse 16, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light has sprung up. The Christ has come. He is in their midst. He's in their city now preaching. The Bible says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His call is to salvation, lost heart. Dear heart, if you're here today and you know not Christ, he issues a call to you. He issues a call to your soul. And and he can deal with your soul. We can deal with the church and church principle around here. But the Spirit of God, and I'll say something about his ministry more in just a moment, he can take when the Word of God is being preached or taught or opened, he can take that word and he can, he can bring conviction into your soul. If you're lost here today, I might not know who that would be, but you know who you are. The call is to salvation. Matthew chapter uh, number four, we saw him preaching like that. I couldn't help but think about it. And I think about him often these days. I don't know why so much, but that Philippian jailer and his salvation experience I want to give you three elements of when a man is saved, when he comes to Christ, three elements that you'll find in everybody's testimony that is saved by the grace of God. You remember the story in the background. Paul and Silas have been beaten and put into the Philippian jail. And the Bible says after the quake, the Bible says the jailer, you remember he was going to fall upon his own sword. He'd rather take his own life than for some Roman soldiers to do it. And so he's going to fall upon his own sword. He feels that the, uh, that, uh, the, the inmates have escaped, uh, perhaps, because the doors have been opened. The fetters have fallen off of all the inmates. And uh, Paul said, do thyself no harm, for we're all here. I've often wondered if all the inmates that night didn't get saved by the grace of God. They want to honor what's right, and so they're just going to stay put until they come and refasten their fetters and shut their doors and lock them in again. Whether all of them were saved or not, we don't know, but it's a miracle that the inmates didn't run. 
for freedom. But uh, that Philippian jailer, the Bible says, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. When someone comes to Christ, number one, there's a confession or there's an admission. There's an admission of sin. Sometimes we like to tug on our lapels as though we've done no wrong. We've done no sin. We are sinners. We're born into this race, born into Adam's fallen, condemned race. There's a confession or an admission, an admittance of sin, a confession of sin. I didn't understand that the night I was saved, but I knew I was guilty before a thrice holy God. I knew that much. Matter of fact, you didn't have to convince me of it. I knew I was guilty of a lot of things. And when the jailer calls for a light and he springs in and he asks, what must I do to be saved? What he's saying is, is I need to be saved. I need what you men have. It's an admission. He didn't frame it like some guys would frame it and put it in a pamphlet. Salvation is a matter of the heart before God. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. With the mouth uh, confession is made unto salvation. Not only confession, but there's contrition. I remember those days well, do you? You won't repent over anything that you're not sorry about. Jesus, when trying to prepare his disciples for his departure, for his exodus, for the cross and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his, his ascension that would follow, he said that when I go away, I'm going to send the paraclete. That's your Greek word. One in the same. He said, I'm going to send him unto you. And he said, if I don't go away, he's not coming to you. Now, wouldn't it be awful to try to get in line, buy a ticket, schedule a flight, to try to get to Jerusalem, to get in line, to see Jesus before you die? You can't do that. But the Holy Spirit is everywhere present. His Christ's physical person couldn't be in, his physical body couldn't be in but one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit, when he come, he's going to do a universal work in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls around the globe. I wonder how many will be saved around planet Earth today because the gospel is being preached and the Holy Spirit will do a work that will produce contrition in the life of a lost person. Listen to what, listen what Jesus said. He said in John 16, verses 7 through 11, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He said, It is expedient for you that I go away. It's necessary that I depart, that I sin. It's necessary. For if I go not away, the comforter, that's the paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In other words, he will convict your heart. He will, uh, he, he will convince you of your sin, your lack of righteousness, and the fact that judgment is to come. Listen to what he said. He said, of sin because they believe not on me, the only thing sent a man to hell is not believing on Christ. Rejecting Christ. Out in the camp meeting this week, the annual camp meeting at Newnan, Brother David and Miss Lee Barnett went. And Brother David, you know what a prankster he is. When he walked on the ground, some of you will remember little Maddie McDowell that came with the Calhouns last year. Maddie's daddy's name is Brandon. We've become good friends through the years. He didn't know Brother David from Adam's house cat. And Brother David come to the back of the tabernacle on Monday. I didn't go out until Monday. There was a mix-up on our hotel reservation, so we waited till that got cleared up, or I did, and went out, and then drove back in Wednesday night after preaching. 
But uh, Brother David, he walked up and he said, uh, he said to Brandon, he said, he said, listen, he said, is there any place I can smoke my pipe? And that guy looked at him funny. And he said, look, he said, if it offends anybody, I don't mind stepping behind a building somewhere or behind a tree. See, anywhere I can smoke my pipe. And Brandon looked at him as though, leave me alone. And I don't want to have to deal with you. And so then he said, it's really, he said, just show me somewhere to go and I'll go smoke it there. And he said, we don't do that around here. You do that at home. Well, Brandon went to Brother Calhoun and he said, who is that fellow right there? And he said, why? He said, do you know he's a pipe smoker? He said, he ain't no pipe smoker. He said, that guy's pulling your leg. And uh, so Brother Calhoun told that on Brother David, before he preached, and he preached a tremendous message on Tuesday morning, he told that. First thing Brother David said when he got up and turned around, he said, it wasn't my pipe smoking that was going to send me to hell. He said, it was my rebellion. That's what sends a man to hell, in essence. It's his pride and rebellion against God. He will not allow God or Christ to make claims on his life or on her life. They want anybody to be Lord over them, telling them how to live their lives. Do you know if you come to Christ, you're going to have to lay your pride down. You're going to have to lay your rebellion down and say, yes, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Are y'all listening to me this morning? He went on to say, he, he said, of sin because they believe not on me, on righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. There's to be contrition over sin, Right? There, there are four, Larry Winkler calls them four dark nuns found in Romans chapter number three. Listen to them. So I'm talking about contrition over sin. Verse number 10 of, of uh, Romans three, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Verse number 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not only our sin, contrition over that, but our sin over, over, um, uh, over our lack of righteousness. He said, he said, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, we have no righteousness to produce. You say, preacher, what if I give alms? I was on a flight once from, from England back to Detroit back in the 90s, and there was a Catholic that was going to catch the connecting flight down to Memphis. He sat between me and Brother Ronnie Bearfield and won't know who we were, where we were from. We told him. I pastored over in Itawamba County. He pastored in Tippa County, Mississippi. And he said, well, I'm a Catholic. said, it's good to be sitting between Christian men. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, I hadn't done a good deed in a long time. Let me give you some alms. He said, he said what's the name of your church? And he wrote a check for $100 uh, to the church that I was pastoring. You say, preacher, did you take it? Absolutely. I took it and dropped it in an offering plate. The devil had it long enough. Let us have it use it. But we don't have any righteousness. Isaiah said our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. To go to heaven, you've got to be as good as God is, but you're not, and I'm not either. And then he said of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That is, the devil's been discovered for who he is, for what he is. He's been uncovered. And, is, and as it is appointed unto men, wants to die. After this, the judgment. We live like there's no judgment to come, even as God's people that have trusted Christ as our Savior. We live as though there is no judgment. Lost men shake their fist in the face of the Bible. 
thus in the face of God. This transgenderism business and all this liberalism and denying what the word of God has to say. Men marrying men and women marrying women and, and all this perversion that's going on. And mutilating these babies the way that they Look, a 12-year-old girl hadn't got any business going through some sex change operation. And you don't leave a 12-year-old to make major decisions in his or her life. You make the decision for them. If they don't even... Look, if they're living under your roof, I don't care how old they are. uh, If they're living under your roof and you're putting food in their belly and taking care of them and clothing them, sending them to school, you do have a right to make some claims. And if they can't make a good solid decision, you make it for them. If they want to rebel and buck up against that, let them rebel and kick and scream. I told someone recent about grounding and whippings and somebody getting in our business. We were coming up. I said, that's just life. If we didn't make the right decision, somebody got in our business and told us about it. Folk coming on today are so offended by anything. You can't share the truth with anybody without offending somebody. We've come a long ways, haven't we, baby? We've come a long ways. This thing's going to get worse. You, you just well as to buckle your seatbelt. So there's confession, there's contrition, and then there's the conversion where we turn from our sin, we turn from ourselves, we turn to Christ, and there are Siamese twins that meet him. They're called faith and repentance. They take place at the same time. I didn't understand that when I was saved, but I've come to understand it. As a matter of fact, for some, for some 33 years, I was saved a little over 33 years ago, and ever since I've been learning about what happened to me February the 9th of 1990. I've been learning a little bit more, and the more I learn about it, the more excited I become about it. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Therefore, because of this, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, part of the proof of salvation, there's still contrition over our sin. We still recognize no righteousness in ourselves. We still know there's a judgment to come. But part of the evidence of fruit in our life is that we don't just follow Christ initially in salvation. We follow him and we follow on. You know what's scary in these days? I was thinking about, I was thinking about this this morning early, sitting at my desk. I, I remember this would have happened about 91. Uh, Dr. Billy Canoy was preaching revival. He preached the fall of the year. He was a theologian. He preached the fall of the year every year for Brother Doug at, at Victory Baptist Church. And he was talking, preached as simple a message I ever heard in my life on salvation. And he talked about what he had been reading. He had a, he had a library that was sold to a, um, sold to a Bible college for $30,000. It probably was worth $130,000. You could talk to Dr. Kanoa. He was at Green Street Baptist Church, Greensboro, North Carolina, for a whole lot of years. He was a preacher's friend. You could talk to him about a writer or a book. He'd tell you not just who the writer was and the quote where you got it. He'd tell you the chapter and sometimes could tell you the page that had come off the book, come out of the book. But you know, he was preaching. It's about 91. He's preaching on salvation. And you pray for me. I think I got a kidney stone hitting me in my left kidney. But he was preaching on salvation. As simple, as simple a message I ever heard on salvation, preaching to the lost. He said, here's the problem with living life and living it very long. He said, you are impressionable while you're young. He said, you begin to experience life independently in your 20s and 30s. 
And he said, you go getting into your 40s and 50s and your way becomes set. Your habits become sure. He said, you get into your 70s, your 80s, and your 90s, and you're really close-minded as to what uh, people will proposition you with. He said, let me show you how that works in salvation. And there were a number of people there that night. And he said, if you were saved uh, as a teenager or younger, he said, raise your hand. About half the people raised their hands. He said, if you were saved as a teen or into your 20s, raise your hands. As about 25% raised their hands. He said, if you were saved in your 30s, your 40s, raise your hand. Three or four raised their hand. And then on into the 70s, nobody raised their hand. Nobody raised their hands in the 80s. And if there was anybody there 90 that night, they didn't raise their hands. They were all saved young in life. This world will make a fool out of you. This world will manipulate you, and Satan would love to do nothing more than mock you all the way to a Christless hell, to the charred walls of the damned. One of the greatest tortures probably of hell is that you have to remember. Isn't that right? Luke 16, isn't that right? Uh, you remember when, when the rich man died and went to hell, looks across the great gulf and begins talking to Abraham. And he said, he said send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, he said, but son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. This is where he said, this is where he started. He said, remember, it'd be awful to be in hell today. Spent your life in church, never bowed to Christ. Or go on Easter and Mother's Day and all that sort of special day business. Hear the gospel and yet reject Christ and have to live through eternity with that. Uh, that uh, certainly it would be awful. The call today is to follow Christ in salvation. He says, follow me. And then the call today to follow Christ is also in sanctification. He said, follow me and I will make you. To be fishers of men. Sometimes I think we get the cart before the horse. We expect things out of young converts that I'm afraid our Lord don't even expect. Now, let me tell you what I didn't just say. I didn't just say that we expect things out of teenagers that's been saved for 10 years that we shouldn't expect. If you've been saved 10 years, you ought to know a little something about how the Lord wants you to live your life. Can you say amen anybody? But I think sometimes... We want to wrap people over the head with the Bible. They've just been converted. They don't know the terminology of the Bible, much less anything else. Sanctification is a lifelong calling. It takes time for people to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody was gracious to you and gave you some space and some time, and we need to do the same thing for young converts. Um, but this business of this business of sanctification, let me read that verse out of Matthew 16, 24 again. Here's what the Bible says. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sanctification is a lifelong calling. It's where the Holy Spirit takes the word of God to take his people, take your experience in life and his providential dealings in your life. He'll take a sermon. He'll take a Sunday school lesson. He'll take your daily Bible reading. He'll take your prayer time. He'll work it all to produce a likeness of Christ in your life. We like Romans 8, verse number 28. We all like that. The old Puritan said, and said it well, it's a soft pillow for a tired head. This is what that verse says. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. 
I'm going to tell you, that brings great comfort to my heart. When, when the winds begin to blow in my life, when it seems like there's an uphill climb, and when it seems that everything is falling apart, I anchor uh, to this verse and other verses in the Word of God, but it doesn't stop there. It says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, listen, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among uh, many brethren. So this process of sanctification is not just so that we do all the no Thou shalt and thou shalt nots. It's so that we be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians and in Colossians. In Galatians 5, 24, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Colossians 3, 5, he says, Mortify, that is, kill. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's not that once we're saved and saved for a span of time that we become sinless. But it is that we get to the place that we sin less. And that's evidence of salvation, that we look more like Christ. I remember the impression it made on me when George W. Truett, he was preaching. Of course, I've got what few books was, was left in print after his death. Uh, First Baptist Dallas, he was a longtime pastor there for a lot of years, and he was walking one of the sidewalks of Dallas, and this lady, he was meeting this lady, and her eyes got fixed on his eyes, in his eyes, and, and they met one another, and he kind of looked away, but felt like that the woman was still looking at him. And so he turned around, he told her that he, he turned around and said, sure enough, she had stopped and was looking at him. And he said, ma'am, can I help you? Do I know you? And she said, no, I don't think we know each other. You just look like somebody that knows my Lord. D.L. Moody lived in a time when men preached in the open air a lot. And kids, mischievous boys, they would do what was called rocking the preacher. And their mischievousness, wanting to disrupt the service, they would pick up rocks and throw at the preacher and they'd run away. And two little buddies were going to do that. It was a common practice. And two little boys had picked up rocks and was about to throw and, and they listened to Moody preach for a little bit and really got fixated in his message. At the end of the sermon, they found themselves standing there. And one said to the other one, said, is, is that God? And the other one said, no, I don't think he's God, but I think he knows him. Can people look at your life? You remember the old question used to be if someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In the process of sanctification, we look more like Christ. We become more Christ-like across time as we walk with the Lord. The call today uh, to follow Christ is in salvation, is in sanctification, also in service and faithfulness. Couldn't help but think about the verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, where he admonished, where Paul admonished, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He said, plant your feet. Stay put. I, I remember when Amanda and I were saved, people we loved, uh, uh, that we had known for a long time, basically said he'd wear off. Um. Even Harry, when I went to pastor full-time, he couldn't understand. He, he, he said, I don't understand it. He said, I guess you're just going to starve to death. 
I, I said, I doubt it. And, of course, he came to understand what was going on in my life. The call to service. Every one of us have that call. Every man, every woman in this, in this auditorium that, that named the name of Christ, we've been called upon to serve. You say, preacher, it don't make any sense. I want to tell you, it's the only thing that does make any sense. Life don't even make sense without God. You take God out of the equation and life makes no sense. You take the potter and he, he never goes into those dark places for that clay. The clay will never be of any use. Life is of no value without God. Life is orchestrated to amount to nothing without God. He didn't say follow some newfangled religious movement like Baptists are notorious for doing about every eight years when somebody comes through shaking something else to hopefully something will fall out and they'll increase numbers and offerings. He said, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. I'll use you in my service. That's what he said. That's exactly what he said. Makes sense to follow the king of glory. It make, it make no sense not to follow the one who gave you life. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest insults to God Almighty is him being your creator and giving you life and you having your very being because of him and he's not taking that life from you. It's, it's a, it's, you're doing real respect to the cause of God to turn your back on the one who gave you life. Can I get a witness? Our service makes sense. Preacher preached all week long, preached his heart out. Lady met him at the door on Friday night, said, I'd give the world to have what you've got. And he said, Lady, that's exactly what it'll cost you. It's exactly what it'll cost you. Listen to what Jesus said about this business of serving him. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sometimes that's difficult to do, isn't it? That's what he said do. Be quiet and walk on. He went on and said, John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept, if they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. There's going to be, a, there's going to be a resistance against the gospel. I've been in places, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I, I was thinking of, of episodes yesterday and, and again this morning where Amanda and I have been in places and folk, uh, they be, would just be a handful. As a matter of fact, um, when Brother Tom Hayes was in the area about two months back, we met the preacher he was with on a Wednesday night at the Mexican place, and there were folks sitting over from us. Now, I mean, they wanted to be a little bit loud. I don't know the rest of them called it. Brother David called it. Brother David joined us too, he and his wife. And uh, we paid them no mind at all. I'm not serving them. I'm not serving for a compliment today. I can do nothing but serve Christ. If you'd have known where I was headed so long ago, what else can I do? What else can I do? You're going to threaten me with heaven? What else can I do? Take it all away from me. And I'm in the city, friend. This book's right. I thought about a mighty fortress that Martin Luther wrote. I won't give you all up, just a few lines. He said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abide us still. His kingdom is forever. God gives grace for your service unto him. Psalm 23, 1, now the most 
familiar psalm. Psalm 23, 1 begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A little child chose that for a memory verse, and she quoted it like this. She said, The Lord is my shepherd, he's all I want. There ought to be a yearning in your heart if you know Christ. To know him more. Another little fellow was to get up and sing those, uh, those words, Where he leads me, I will follow. And the little fellow got it kind of crossed up and said, What he feeds me, I will swallow. So wrapped up in this world. Philippians 4, verse number 6, Paul would write, Be careful for nothing. It means don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. Look in chapter number 6 of Matthew. You're in chapter 4. Look over in chapter number 6 and put in about verse number 24. We'll read this in a hurry. But the Bible says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse uh, 24 and following, no, well, as a matter of fact, before we read through it, look at verse number 25. You who mark in your Bible, you're to underline what the Bible says in verse 25. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. You know what that means? It means don't worry. Verse 27, which of you by taking thought? Verse 27. Verse 28, and why take you thought for raiment? Verse number 31, therefore, take no thought. Verse number 34, he closed this section by saying, Take, therefore, no thought for the morrow. Now watch this, verse 24 and following of Matthew 6. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? He said, take a look in the air. He said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, let, uh, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can change your height? Now, what he says in verse number 27? Can add one cubit unto his stature. Verse 28, And why take ye thought for raiment? Skipping down to verse 31. Therefore, take no thought. In other words, don't fret. Saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or how are we going to get through this? And he says it again in verse 34. How are we going to make it? He said, don't live your life like that. Now, I want to tell you something. I live at God's expense. There have been times in mine and Amanda's life since coming to know Christ, times got so hard it literally was from God's hand to our mouth. But there was always something from God's hand for our mouth. I trust him. Matter of fact, I rest in him. And I'm not saying that I don't have concern for situations and people. I, I'm as concerned for Brother Philip Jackson as you are. As a matter of fact, I aim to stay pretty close, keep a close check. I love him. You won't ever meet anyone who is a gentleman, a Christian gentleman of, a, of the highest order that will outrank him. And he's the best in my book. His preaching is unique, his gifting is unique, he's visual. It's the way he preaches, it's the way he approaches life. But he's an artist. But here's what I know. I know God has a plan. He and I have spoken about that. God has a plan for his life. I don't understand that plan. I probably would choose a different route. And you would too. He would too. He has a family to care for. I remember after being diagnosed with cancer, I got up about 1.30. I tried to go to bed. I got up about 1.30 and went to the kitchen where I was living. 
And my struggle was where a man's struggle is a lot of times with something like that. My struggle was, was how's Amanda and the kids going to make it? So I, got, I get up and I go to the kitchen. I was going to make some coffee or something. And, and, and just as distinct, I'm telling you, as, as Tom Gillum would say, he didn't speak to me in an audible voice. In an audible voice, it was louder than that. He spoke to my heart, and he said, I can take a lot better care of them than you've been taking of them. He said, you just trust me. As a matter of fact, there's some verses begin to live in my heart that year. Let me say something lastly about Christ's purpose for these men's lives. Look back with me, Matthew 4, 19. And... Uh, and we'll bring the message to a close. Watch what he says. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And he calls these men for many purposes. And, and, and some of them I, I certainly will not cover here this morning. I'll mention two or three to you. Now, we do know he calls them for fellowship. Now, we know that because when he's going to call and commission 12, in Mark's account of that, Mark 3.14 says, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him. Isn't that interesting? That men would be with him. That men would spend time with him. God could have let us all been born, all of us die and go to hell and still been God. That God desires fellowship with fallen man through his son, Jesus Christ, is a miracle. Not only, not only does he call these four men for fellowship, no doubt about it, but he calls these four men for discipleship too. There ain't any doubt about that. He trained 12. He invested himself into the lives of 12. He performed miracles. He saved souls. He walked on water. You name it, he did it over and again. But he gave himself to 12 men. The apostle Paul picks up the same principle. There was Sosthenes. There was Titus. There was Timothy. There was Aquila. There was Priscilla. There was Barnabas. There were others. He gave himself to those individuals. The book of 1 Timothy teaches us that we are to take what's been handed down to us. Nothing different. The same gospel has been handed to us, and we are to take that and put it into the hands of other faithful men. If we aren't preaching the gospel, the apostles preach, we ain't preaching the gospel. And that is a Bible principle. Samuel, in the Old Testament, started somewhat of that sort, helping men as they serve God. Lastly, he calls these four men that they may call men through the glorious gospel of our blessed Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Verse 19 again, he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He said, you're good at what you do here on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret. They're all one and the same. He said, but now I'm going to work in your life and invest in your life and make you fishers of men. And according to Acts chapter number 17, isn't it? He will take those 11 and he'll turn the world upside down. The 11, that is, minus Judas, of course. By that time, Paul would be saved. Why do, why do we want to share the gospel? Well, we want to share the gospel with the lost world because we've been told to. If the Great Commission had been given to the angels of God, I felt like for years when considering that, I think heaven would have been emptied in five seconds of angels. 
We want to share the gospel with lost men because we want to. We want to, not just because we've been told to, but because we want to. I don't know how we've got this mindset anymore that it's a burden to share the gospel with a lost person. What we have is not going to kill them. What we have, if they'll receive the message and receive Christ, what we have will grant life unto them. And we ought to share the gospel because we have to. It's only hope they've got is the gospel. Amanda and I, somebody we love dearly, will call on occasion. And this individual will say to me, Kevin, I want what you and Amanda have got. It was raining. We were sitting out on the front porch. This individual called, and, and I was talking, and I was able to just narrow it down to what the gospel is. It's not your good intentions. It's not given to the church. It's not doing good deeds in the community. It is coming to Christ. It is knowing Christ. And he said, fellas, give your life to me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what I'm going to do for you, I want to do for others. And I'm going to use you to do it. I, I close with this. And of course, our problem today, I'm going to tell you part of our problem. We're so politically minded and so wrapped up in politics. If it ain't Biden, it's Trump. If it ain't Trump. Listen, there are corrupt politicians local, they're state, on the state level, and they're on the national level. And I want you to listen to me, whether you like this or not. You listen to what I'm thinking to tell you. We're a whole lot more interested in saving America, and we ain't going to save America, but we're more interested in saving America than we are in saving souls. Now, you do whatever you want to do with that. I'll vote conservative if I know what the conservative party is. I'll vote that every time on the ticket, but we're a whole lot more interested in how Donald Trump's been treated than how Jesus Christ has been treated. And we don't want preachers to say anything about it. I do close with this. I've got to quit. I was preaching at First Baptist Gracemont a few weeks back out in Oklahoma. And uh, the Lord dealt with my heart over Matthew 5 and verse number 4, which says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that mourning is not walking around with a long face. That mourning uh, has to do with, with being broken over sin and, and the condition of people's souls. God broke all of us in the church service. Andrew and Mary Beth Jones was doing the special singing all week. And uh, so I had bound for prayer, and then they come up behind me. Andrew's right here on my left. And I said, I wonder if anyone's on your heart. Andrew just broke through, and he said, Brother Merritt, my mother's youngest brother and called his name is Lost. And my mother has been praying for her brother to be saved for a long time. Would you pray for my brother tonight? There was a lady over on my right, and she said, Brother Merritt, um, I have a lost son. He's going to die and go to hell and spend eternity there. If he's not saved, would you pray for my son? I said, tell me his name. It went from one to the other to the other. God just broke us all that night. Slim, if God lets us all live, I want you to meet him. Uh, used to be mean as a snake. Wears overalls everywhere he goes, rides a Harley. Uh, he got in invitations to join Hell's Angels and the Banditos and a couple of others. He told them, he said, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. He turned them all down, mean as a snake. 
But when he talks about when he got saved, he'll say, when Jesus saved me. (laughs) And old Slim was standing by his mother, who's about 90 years old. And Slim said, Brother Merritt, I have a friend. We call him Pudgy. He's my best friend throughout life. And he's lost. Now, I've witnessed to Pudgy. Would you pray that Pudgy get saved? Now, we've lost that burden, church. Now, you know me. I'm not a preacher that's going to try to twist your arm or be intrusive. If the Holy Spirit can't do a work in your life, I can't do it in your life. But I wonder if there's anybody here today. You've got the message. And there's somebody in your family, somebody close to you that's lost, and they need Christ. I wonder if you'd get under a burden and go to praying for them, asking the Lord to do a work in their heart and life as we stand together. Miss Angie's coming.